This is the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry. Wow, that's exciting. Hey man, how's it going? How'd you like the uh, the new intro there? Uh, I really, really like the new music. It kind of sounds like we've grown up a little bit. A little um, bit. Yeah, yeah. Our friend Dan Cleary contributed uh, our music. You know, I mean, the, 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 the old intro, which, you know, I, I really like what you did there, but it was just a little too... I know. This is, you know, Chris Cansey does this, and he knows these people, and my God, this guy's incredible, you know? So, you know, it's a little too much, a little too much for me, but um, I really, really appreciate it and everything, you, you know, you say and, and whatnot, but I like the new music. It kind of, you know, it's the next logical step in our, in our uh, you know... Yeah. Well, there's always growing pains and you do something and then you kind of go, gosh, I can't believe I did that or said that or did it that way. But it's uh, always progression in doing, uh, doing new things. And um, I'm just going to you, you gave him credit, but I'm going to give him a shout out as well. Dan Cleary, thank you uh, for the for the music. It's uh, the new intro and I've got an outro now. Um, and it was fun to work with and it's very cool. And so, uh, yeah, it's exciting. You know, we're, we're kind of maturing a little bit and coming to light along and who knows what that'll lead to. But anyway, um, so how have you been, man? It's uh, been two weeks or so since I've seen you. Yeah, it's it's good. You know, life is life is really starting to open up. You know, it's beautiful outside. They're playing baseball now. Baseball. Uh, I, I, right. I know you're not a baseball guy, but I, you know. I almost I pinged you last week when I, or the other day when I know it was opening day. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, beautiful weather. We've got a smidgen of work coming up. So that, that makes me feel kind of whole again. Um, so yeah. How about you? Yeah. Um, good. Um, you know, as you know, I'm going down to Florida next week to see mom for her 85th. So wow. that's going to be exciting. See brother Chris and some little bit of family stuff, but works chugging right along. The spring's great. Um, yeah. Just excited for the nicer weather. Happy for you. You get a little bit of work coming along and uh, no, all is good. All is good. So all right, now that we got the uh, niceties out of the way, and uh, so let's let's dive into this. I think this is going to be a fun one. I can just tell because of the, the pregame banter that we had going on here. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I'm surprised I haven't met him in the past, um, but I'm looking forward to getting to know him. But uh, who do we got, man? Well, today is, uh, you know, I, I'd like to call this person a really good friend, but since we've ignored each other for the last 10 years, I really can't, I really can't say that. But, you know, uh, somebody who I really love the shit out of uh, and, and enjoy working with, dining with, hanging out with, and going to baseball games with. Um, and you know what? He's pretty good at what he does for a living as well. He's uh, another world-class sound engineer out there in the world. Uh, coming from Phoenix, Arizona, Mr. Robert Scovey Scoville. How are you, man? CK, I am so good, man. I am so good. I, I got to just tell you, I got to start by just saying, I'm so glad I was here to witness the CK production approval process. <laughs> I've missed that so much. You know, somebody trying to get CK's approval on something that's happening in production here. That was fantastic to be able to see that again. Oh, how fun. How fun. So how, how are you? How, how's life? You, you know, what do you, do you, you, you surviving this, the, you know, the apocalypse? Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sound like one of those guys, but you know, you, you either see things as obstacles or you see them as opportunities, you know? So, 
Uh, I've been one of those guys that's kind of looked at the industry and said, hey, this is a great opportunity if you make it so. So let's let's go make it so. Yeah, I so agree. I so agree. You know, just be creative, do things, do things that maybe you've not done before. You know, that's right. Lots of, right. You know, I mean, I told myself at the beginning of this that, you know what, I'm, this is the year I'm going to learn Vectorworks. <laughs> <laughs> Go get him, Tiger. I, I don't know Vectorworks. <laughs> <laughs> and is there is there more money in the future for you if you do this? I'm just curious. Uh, uh, no, there's not. You know, I just you know all all the young guns, the young production managers, they they know Vectorworks. And yeah, they, they, yeah, they do a lot of their own things. But you know, not not that I want to go on a Vectorworks tangent, but in, in my mind, Vectorworks is 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 is, is it's an application that uh, applies to certain areas like rigging. I'm of not course. a rigger. Even if I knew Vectorworks, I'm not going to be doing rigging overlays. You know, I, I mean, there, there, there's a reason for Vectorworks, you know, and uh, you know, they're kind of cool for on sales and that kind of thing, but you know, that's what the but, promoters for. But you know, I, I mean, you kind of hit at the heart of something there, Chris. I mean, you know, especially a man in your position in a production, you have to know all the different languages, right? I mean, you've got to be able to speak fluently about a lot of different areas, right? At least a cursory level to be able to manage a production. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know what? I either know it or I fake it pretty good. One or the other. I knew that. I wasn't <laughs> going to say it, I, but I remember that well. <laughs> Uh, hey, so, you know, I, uh, leading up to this podcast, like I, I, I try to be kind of professional and, uh, and do a little research. I mean, obviously the things I know about you are, are, are for, you know, first and foremost, but you know, I, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're an educator, you're a lecturer, you do master classes. You've been, yeah. is, is, have you, have you filled a lot of your time, uh, during the pandemic doing that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of made sense to do it on one level. Uh, and really it's kind of the, um, it's kind of driving that concept of opportunity again, right? I, you know, I, just to kind of reframe this conversation a little bit, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I, I from pretty, pretty early on when the, the lockdown happened, I remember thinking, okay, this is actually going to be kind of cool because our industry, and I'm going to talk audio here for a second, our industry is going to get to take a pause, right? Because it has been zooming forward like a freight train out of control in terms of technology and the skills required to operate that technology. I mean, right. it's just been going blazing, like faster than it's ever gone in the history of that part of the industry, right? And I just remember thinking, oh man, this is going to be so good. Everybody's going to be able to take a pause and we're going to have, have guys actually be able to take some time and get up to speed on networked audio, on you know all of these other disciplines that everybody's just kind of been learning on the job and man, it, it's, that's a problem for us in audio for yeah. sure. And if you tag on streaming to that, I remember thinking, okay, here we go. Now this industry is going to get really up to speed. The infrastructure for streaming is going to get put in place because it has to. Mm -hmm. And now that's going to be a part of our world going forward. It's not going to leave us. It's going to be part of everything we do in live event from now on, you know? Right. Right. So, all of that is kind of made, you know, from my end of it, I, I, you know, I also work for a manufacturer full time as well as doing shows and touring and stuff. And that afforded me the opportunity to do some podcasting and some, some webinars. I, I do this regular thing. It's about, I do about two weeks a month now called the lab and it, we pick a topic and we get in, I, you know, I go into the surround studio that's down the hall here 
and we get in there and do some real deep dives on audio topics for people. And then I post them up, people watch the replays, et cetera. So, wow, wow. Uh, you know, it's a, yeah. So there's a lot of teaching and sharing and interaction that's going on, but it's really good for our industry. I, I'm our side of the industry. It's very yeah. necessary right but now. But he's, but he's catching up, huh? Yeah. Well, they have the time to catch up now. That's the cool thing, you know, right. Do, if, do you, if do you, you take it as an opportunity, do you, do you, do you enjoy that? I mean, do you, do you enjoy the lecturing and the, you know, cause it's not just getting online and talking. There's a lot of preparation involved and, you know, you know, well, you, I, I think you probably know me well enough to know this, but you know, I'm, I, I'm one of these people that I, I loathe a charlatan. I just loathe people that are charlatans and what teaching forces you to do. If you can do it with integrity is you go learn the shit out of it before you talk to somebody about it. Right. You know, so I'm the one growing <laughs> as yeah, much yeah, yeah, as yeah, the yeah. audience, you know, it's yeah. like, you have to do the research, you have to dig in and hopefully know what you're talking about, you know, and be able to back it up. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm so, doing, doing one myself, a masterclass where I, uh, but, but I'm recording it. So yeah. I have this light set up and a camera and I, and I write out my lines and everything. And I, and I, and I have to just talk to nobody into a camera. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually hard. I, that's, it's I that's it's very really hard. hard. Yeah. Cause last year I did one live, uh, kind of a zoom class for, for a production school. And that was so easy yeah. because the kids ask questions and, you know, and, and it just, it's just off the, off the hip and it's so it's fun. This yeah. is, this is, I don't want to say it's a task, but it's, it's a, it's a lot harder. I'll tell yeah. you that. Yeah. Well, I know doing very technical topics. I mean, you kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, you, you, and I don't mean this in the Matt Gates way, you expose yourself, you know, you are, <laughs> you know, you are exposed to your audience and you have to be ready to answer questions, you know, yeah. and you got to have, you know, enough chutzpah to say, if a question comes up that you don't know, you got to be able to say, Hey, I don't know, but I'll go find out, hang on. And, or, you know, I'll get back to you on it. I'll dig and find out the answer on that. Right. You know, as opposed to just faking your way through it, you, you just can't fake your way through it in those situations. You know, people are too, uh, you know, they're just too susceptible to being manipulated that way. You just gotta, you gotta have it, gotta do it with integrity. You just mm. gotta, you know, you know, what's gonna be interesting. Everybody's gonna, when we get back to work, everybody's gonna have fresh ears. You know, I mean, you know, you know, monitor guys are going to do really well for a few weeks. <laughs> it's so funny you're saying this. I, I remember having this exact thought about two or three weeks ago, just thinking, man, I know what my ears were like after taking a two week break from tour. You know, where you come back out to the tour, you turn on the console and the band starts playing and you go, geez, is that where we left off? <laughs> you know? Well, now, you know, everybody's got a year away from that. So, yeah, fresh ears, fresh perspective. Everything is going to be fresh. There's going to be some awkward moments as we start to come back. Oh, uh, funny, funny. Well, you, you know how I, I, you've listened to some of these podcasts, so you know how I, li I like to do things. Uh, <laughs> I think the listeners are interested in, in people's lives and their careers and how they got started and where they yeah. came from and how they got, you know. Um, you, you're from St. Louis, right? From, or was it Kansas City? Was it St. Well, Louis? Well, I, I was born in Kansas City uh, and then moved to St. Louis when I was about I don't know, seven, eight years old. Oh, okay. and all my all my formative years there and then came back to Kansas City 
to go to college and kind of got my audio career started there. So gotcha, gotcha. You worked for a local company there, did you not? I Kansas, did. Kansas yeah, City. I took. A, I I worked as kind of a. I guess you call it an intern. I don't know what it was, but I worked there for a good chunk of time. Uh, it was a big regional powerhouse through that part of the country, and they did shows, a, a ton of shows, a ton of really great shows, a lot of really great work. And I, I, I didn't gather it at the time, but I was around some really exceptional audio people there. I mean, legendary audio people. I didn't know it at the time. I was too young to get it. Uh, but in hindsight, I just think, oh, my gosh, I was walking around in, a, in a fields of gold there, you know, <laughs> just absorbing every inch of it so yeah that was that was a big deal and i yeah i mean i caught a really lucky break in that uh there was a band from kansas city called shooting star right uh, that was breaking really big right as i got into it there and i was able to hook up with them and was out touring when i was 20 you know i mean so right opening for everybody for, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Over our many dinners over the years, we, you know, you've told me the story of this. Word. This is just a big recap. Did well, you it just up, depends on whether I tell you in the early part of the drinking or the later part of the drinking. That depends on how much, on how good the story is recalled. Uh, right? There you go. But but were you a monitor guy first? Does he start mixing monitors? Wait, I, you get your hands in everything. You know, I mean, you're, at that point, you're taking anything you can get your hands on where you're behind a console. So I didn't turn down any gigs. But yeah, some of the early gigs I did were monitor engineering gigs, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Little little return there. <laughs> you know what I learned about monitor engineering? Don't do it. Don't ever do it. <laughs> friends don't let friends mix monitors. That's just oh, how it works. Oh boy, you know, it is, you know you, you're, you're just a, that, that guy who turns into a target on stage oh, left. It is, it is so true. Oh, great. So, so I, I, I know you're, you, you and I have, you know, talked about in the past just, because I know, I, I don't know where you went from Shooting Star, but I, I do remember some go-go stories. Did you, oh, yeah. you, well, you were, you were front house guy for the Go-Go's during their heyday, weren't you? No, I was their monitor guy. I oh, did monitor guy. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that's Which is cool. even, I mean, I, we got to be careful where we go in 2021 when we talk about these things, but doing monitors for five women. Yeah, that'll, that'll challenge you. Yeah. <laughs> a a you lot know. of, a lot of their debauchery is coming to light now because of oh, the, the HBO man. thing and, and Kathy Valentine's book where I, 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 I listened to Kathy on a podcast recently and, and uh, she's great. She's fantastic. Oh, she is we're, so we're, much we're calling her stories, but you know, you, yeah. you, that was, that was debaucherous, wasn't it? Here, oh man. Let me tell you, those girls, they could go. <laughs> I didn't call them the go-go's for nothing. I mean, I, one of my funniest memories of that time and that piece of them was we at one point, we had NXS opening up for us. And I remember thinking, wow, okay, this is going to be pretty cool. This great band, you know. And they're, the Aussies show up, you know. And they're like big peacocks. I mean, they're just strutting around thinking they are the, you know, they're going to rule the roost. And they are partiers. I mean, they are Australian-level partiers, you know. And these girls buried them. <laughs> I mean, buried them. They, they thought they were coming to party. The girls showed them <laughs> they were not there to party. <laughs> they were there to recover. <laughs> oh, how funny. Oh, oh man. Funny. I just remember watching that just thinking, oh, go ahead, little NXS guys. Yeah, just show us what you got there. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the next part of that, I mean, I hope we're not talking too far out of school here. I think Kathy's probably going to reveal all of this. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, we so- went down to, uh, in, in my time with them, we did Rock and Rio. And, you know, we went, you know, down there. I don't know if, you, did you do any of the early Rock and Reels? Oh, I think yeah, this yeah. was Rock and Reel number er, two, or whatever. This was early 90s I did it. I, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, well, no, we did, uh, this was early 80s. This was probably oh, okay. All right, 82, so no, 83. I, I, was, I was well after that then. Yeah, we were on, uh, we were on two, like when we went down there at that point, you were down for two weeks and you played two performances in those two weeks and there was a, a slotted day for you. And we were, and luckily we were on the Queen days. We played on the same, same days that Queen played down there at that time, which was just unbelievable. I, I, those are still some of my greatest concert memories today was Queen in Latin America in the early 80s. Oh my gosh, it yeah. was unbelievable. But, you know, that was when, you know, in Brazil, you know, certain illicit substances were everywhere. You know, I mean, there was just no getting out of it. And the amount of participation in those illicit substances was just unbelievable. It was, I don't know how you would even categorize it. It was so far <laughs> off the chain. And, you know, the amazing part of it was like, and I, I don't know if they continued to do this over time, but I remember getting there and just thinking, Oh, this is a really, really bad idea. Yeah, all the road crews for all of these bands, all staying in the same hotel. <laughs> right. So, Drinking the bar dry. Yeah. I didn't sleep for three weeks. I mean, I just, <laughs> why sleep? No point in sleeping. There's a cab driver downstairs that's got the stuff that's going to keep you awake. So no point in sleeping. I mean, it's, uh, let's just go hang out at the bar. Uh, I so- remember a good friend, Davey Bryson, was down there with Rod Stewart at the time. And every night in the bar, every night in the bar, he was completely holding court. It was just, it was a marvelous thing to see. It was incredible. Wow. The William <laughs> Wallace of monitor engineers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I don't know the chronology of your career, but, you know, you're shooting star, go-go is some of the early days. But you, you eventually ended up, mixing the biggest band in the world at that point, you know, with Def Leppard, you know, they were in the the 80s band in the world during the uh, pyromania hysteria era. They just were. I mean, I was in the industry not doing, you know, I worked for, you know, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and smaller things, but we were just all in awe of how big they were, you know, doing in the round, just, just fucking well, selling. You know, here's a, here's a funny insight to that, Chris, that most people have either don't know or have forgotten about. Okay. You know, we, <laughs> I mean, they worked forever on that record, you know, uh, you know, after Pyromania working on Hysteria. Matter of fact, I, I remember <laughs> this will put some context on how long they worked on that record. I remember Joe Elliott being in the studio one day and saying, Fellas, you know how long we've been working on this record? We've been working on this record longer than Cream's entire career. (laughs) (laughs) Can we just wrap it up? I mean, let's wrap it up and get it out there and see how we do. Oh, how funny. (laughs) But, you know, the record comes out and, you know, first singles were released in England and Europe. Does pretty good. Single release in the United States. That's okay. We have this huge tour booked. I mean... We are, we are, you know, you know how management works. Oh, we're booked for 18 months, you know. That was, that was Q Prime at the time, right? Q Prime, yeah. yeah. And so tour starts, and it's not selling so well. It's just not doing good. Single didn't do all that great. 
couple, first couple singles didn't do all that great. Did okay, but didn't do that great. I, I, here's some here's some context for it. On the within the first, I'm gonna say, let's say, let me just do the math here. The first six months of that tour, we had gone and booked into all the places that we would normally play, all arenas, obviously, not selling out. I remember us playing the Omni there, and probably sold That's about. A at the time it was a big place it's probably sold about a third of the house and that was when everybody started kind of going okay hang on a minute here you know this this may not go we, we may shut this down early right so our last show our last show of the tour was in colorado at um was it mcnichols is that what the what it used to yeah, be called? mcnichols yeah yeah exactly yeah and it was our only double nighter of the entire tour. We did two nights there. So Q Prime, in their wisdom, said, let's film it. Let's film it. Okay, great. So we film that, and we get handed our platinum records, and we go home. Tour's done. Tour's done. An, abs an abject failure, without a doubt. All the video that comes from that goes to MTV. Pour some sugar on me. Armageddon it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Two two weeks later, three weeks later, we've booked another 12 to 14 months. I mean, it just exploded. Absolutely exploded. And it was all these frantic calls of, no, no you know, hold the gear, you know, don't <laughs> unload anything. You know, I mean, it was just an, kind of an absolute panic. We're going back out, you know. And we were out for another 14 months after that. Right. We came back to Atlanta, probably another five, six months later, three complete sold out nights. From, so, a, from a third, from a third selling, I mean, yeah, from a third of the third arena, of the house third of the to house. three nights in a, in a span of about six to eight months, all because wow. of MTV, period, end wow. of story. If MTV doesn't happen, the tour's done. So let's, let's go back to the, let's go back to that tour. So that's, that's in the round, right? It was in the round. Yeah. And so you've got an Electrotech system. Yeah, we were using LabQ. Uh, you know, the funny story behind that tour. I, I, I'll tell you kind of a cool story here, Chris. This is not too many people know this story. You just looked around. Yeah, I just kind of checking to make sure nobody's gonna <laughs> say no. Don't tell that. So I in '85, I guess '86, I was mixing Alice Cooper's first comeback tour, right? And I mean, I was a huge Alice Cooper fan. I mean, oh, I, that I, was uh, when he did that song Poison, right? That, that it was pre, it was the one previous to that. I did oh, the okay, Poison gotcha. tour tour, but I did gotcha. the one previous to that, which I think was Nightmare Returns, something like that. I mean, it was a huge thrill for me because I'd been an Alice fan for my entire life. So to get Bob, to mix Bob that, Ezrin, huge thrill. Uh, so no, Bob that was Michael still... Wagner produced that record, okay. and then uh, Desmond Child produced Poison, I believe. Oh wow. Anyway, I do the tour, and on that tour, opening act is Tesla. Q Prime. Right? Yeah. You seeing where I'm going? Mm hmm So Tesla's out. Peter and Cliff are out all the time. They hear me mix probably 70% of the nights. Somehow, I swear to you as I sit here, if I had a Bible, I'd swear on it here. Somehow, Joe Elliott gets a hold of one of my desk tapes from the tour. Now, I have no idea how this happened. I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, I know, but I don't know it for sure. <clears throat> Band's getting ready to, Def Leppard's getting ready to gear up. 
and Alice Tour is getting ready to wind down. The other tour that's getting ready to go out that's a Q Prime act is Dokken. I wanted to mix Dokken. <laughs> Man, I want to mix Dokken. Let's go. I want some George Lynch. I want some all those guys. I want to do that. Peter, I want to mix Dokken. Cold response. Kind of a cold shoulder. I just thought, oh, okay. Anyway, Joe calls Peter and goes, I don't know who mixed this tape. That's our guy. We've got to have that guy. Do you know who it is? <laughs> and Peter's kind of going, because he's been hearing it. He's kind of going, are you sure that's the guy? I've been hearing it out here. I'm, I'm not so Nope. That's the guy. We got to have that guy. So I'm home. Phone rings. Caller ID. Q Prime. This is awesome. I got the docking gig. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bob, uh, we, uh, you, you, would you be interested in doing Def Leppard? I've been talking to Joe. You know, all, he's really, you know, marveling at whatever you can do. He, they want you, you know. And I, and I swear to you, my immediate response was, oh, Def Leppard, really? Man, I want to do docking. <laughs> so, long story short, you know, oh. we, we make the connection. And Peter had asked a handful of other engineers if they wanted to do it. And he already had this in the round concept kind of vetted a little bit with what he's doing. And he was asking audio engineers, hey, can we actually do this? Can we pull this off? And I guess to a man, every other engineer that he spoke to said, I don't know, man. I don't think that's going to work. And I was the only guy that said, yeah, we'll make that work. Just got to hang the speakers mm. in a circle. Let's go. <laughs> you know? Well, today and in around the show, you know, there's six months of sound design and heat maps and, and, and all these ways to do it properly. Right, right. Did you just... Oh, we were t totally just, flying by the seat of our pants. Just chucked the boxes up in the air and pointed them at the seats yeah. and just made sure that it was 360 degrees. Yeah. And honestly, part of the reason that it was that we ended up with um, Electrotech on that tour was because of the weight of the cabinets. It was, the, it was really the only PA that we could hang and get in that kind of configuration that would handle heavy metal and, yeah. you know, was light enough to do it. So that, that was actually part of the design factor that we ended up with there that actually worked. Yeah. Uh, so that part was cool. But yeah, I, I'll tell you another funny little story. I hope Peter doesn't mind me telling this story because this, this is kind of funny. He doesn't listen to me. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to email him the link just so he knows. <laughs> so we're at our first show in Glens Falls, New York. Right now, the anticipation for this show from Q Prime, you know, especially Peter, because this was his baby. Right. I mean, it was just off the chain. They've been working. I mean, we've been advancing this thing for a year and a half. And, you know, all the builds, everything. Everybody's so excited about this. And got the stage set up in the center of PA up. Peter's sitting with me at the front of house riser when the doors open. The doors open, and I kid you not, the first kid that came through the thing comes running down to the aisle, right down to the railing, right where we're sitting, and he's looking, and he's kind of looking around, and he's going, well, wait a minute. Who put the stage in the center? This is going <laughs> to suck. <laughs> I mean, I was just crawling under the rack, you know, just thinking, oh, my <laughs> gosh, what's going to happen here, man? And, and just the look on Peter's face was just fantastic. But he, he took it like a champ. You know, I mean, it, it was like, OK, we know what we got here. This is going to be cool. Just hang in there with us. <laughs> you know. Where did you where did you put the, the front of house console? For that it show? was on the floor, 
but boy, it wasn't very far back in some of these places, man. I mean, there were times in some of these smaller venues we did where I was, you know, 14 rows back from the PA system. Wow. We didn't put it up in the seats. I didn't want to put it up in the seats. I wanted to be down on the floor. I, in hindsight, I might have changed that, but uh, it seemed to work fine for what we were doing. Nice. So is that the, you know, was, was, was Def Leppard your introduction to Rush? That, yeah, those two things dovetailed. And again, Peter Mensch is kind of the, the uh, common thread there. Uh, and also Howard Ungerleiter, funny enough, because Howard did a lot of the, uh, some of the lighting design on the in the round thing for Def Leppard. Oh, he yeah. did all the movers. Yeah, uh, that's right. That. I remember that. Well, Howard so, and I podcasted. He told me that. He told me a little bit about that. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I got to meet him. And, and, you know, for me, I mean, while I was a big Alice fan, Rush for me was the dream gig. That was wow. the dream gig. I mean, I was the Rush fan that got to mix the show. I mean, I was that guy. Wow. So, you know, uh, similar sort of situation, you know, we were doing a show up in Toronto and uh, Rush was looking for a new front of house engineer and Getty came down to the show and sat right behind me for the entire show. And then we hit it off from there. So nice. And was, what was your first record cycle with Rush? What, what were they doing at the time? Uh, they had just finished Hold Your Fire and we were just moving on to Presto. Presto. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice. I mean, yeah. yeah so I, that was that was a great time. I I just absolutely loved that gig. I was so heartbroken to have to leave that gig. Oh, oh, to leave Rush. Yeah, yeah. And that was due to Petty, or why did why did? You yeah, know? yeah. Well, you know, it was one of those things. I mean, I was with Rush all the way through. You know, the tragedies with Neil. Um, and I mean, honestly, at that point, I mean, this is the late '90s. I mean, it really did not look like Rush was going to survive it. I mean, it just didn't. I mean. It, you kind of sympathize with it. You know, I mean, Neil's the lyricist in the band. He's lost his daughter, his only daughter and, or his only child and his wife in a span right. of, you know, six months. It's like, you know, he always said, what am I going to write about? And of course, you know what I'm going to write about. I can't do it, you know? So, you know, I, like I said, there, there was all the underpinnings of them not going forward mm -hmm. at all. So that was it. But, you know, going, you know, of course, we know that we know the tragedy there and, and, and how they pulled out of it. But you know, going back to, you know, being the sound guy, I mean, that was a, a interesting part of their career because, you know, they started as a heavy metal band, you know, guitar, bass, drums, you know, and then they started integrating technology. Keyboards yeah. started coming in bass pedals. Um, Getty's vocals went from a shrilling scream to a relaxed kind of vibe. So you yeah, can tell that the way more pop sensibility in the Yeah, in the, 90s, the influences of the, the 80s. 80s yeah, kind of brought them into the 90s. So yeah. they turned into, you know, they weren't certainly a pop band, but, you know, they they were influenced by, you know, Regatta de Blanc by the police. Yeah. You know, they were... Well, uh, their edge were, got softened a little bit, no yeah, doubt about it. They, you know, the 80s. They, 80s, you know, electronic pop, you know, inter, inter, influenced them very heavily. So yeah. Yeah. I think that was a really interesting era. You know, I think it kind of started just after... Um, moving pictures and going into signals and yeah, Grace Under Pressure really was kind of their. That's, that's always the one I mark where they they started really feeling the influence of the '80s. But you know, all of that said, Chris, I, I mean, I've always felt this way because I mean, I've been a Rush fan since day one. Yeah, me too. You know, they are such a unique beast because it is really hard to pick out what their influences were. I mean, you just try to say, well, where did Rush come from? I just like, I know where Led Zeppelin came from. That came from, you know, rhythm, blues, blues. Where did Rush come from? Yeah. I don't have a clue, you know. 
think it's a and, little and, bit of everything, you know, because I, I think they were influenced by progressive rock, you know, bands like Yes. Totally. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, Yes, you know, Chris Squire had his influence on Getty, no doubt about it. You know, uh, classical music had its influence on Alex, if you listen to his playing. And, yeah. and I'll just say, I'll go on record as saying this. I think Alex Lifeson is the most underrated guitar player in the history of rock music. I, I agree. He's very talented. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you think about the breadth of parts, sounds, composition that he put against that band. It's just breathtaking. Yeah. Absolutely breathtaking. Agreed. Agreed. I've, I've seen them so many times. And, uh, you know, they just, whether it's the songwriting or the technology or the instrumentation, the playing, all of it, it's just, it's a complete package. It really yeah. is. They were a singularity. I've said it before. I, I We'll never, we, we're not going to see that again. You can see spices of it in other bands, but I, I mean, I, I'll put Neil there as well and just say, without doubt, one of the greatest drum composers of that genre, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, I used well, to have this argument all the time with, you know, drummers and stuff. Well, I can play all of his stuff. The question isn't whether you can play his stuff. The question is, given a blank piece of paper, would you write that part there? Yeah. That's the question. And the answer is no, you would not. You know? Well, that that's why his his you know drum drum solos are about as dull as as watching paint dry. <laughs> his 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 solos were composed. They were, you know, Very they were composed. So. They were pieces of music. They weren't just double kick and how fast you can do it and, no. and rolling the drums and hitting the cymbals and then banging the gong at the end. You know, you you know he had composed drum solos that actually had a beginning, a middle. Uh, you know, and that, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was nice to be a part of that process too. I got to tell you because you know we we got pretty trusting of each other <laughs> over the course of years there, and you know we were doing <laughs> we were doing surround sound at that point. You know, I mean, before people were doing surround sound, yeah, <clears throat> we had speakers hung, you know, 360 degrees in venues, and we allowed that to become part of the drum solo where he would play off of those surround speakers. Oh, interesting! It was so cool. It was just so so much fun. That was the alternate speaker source. We called it the ass. That's right. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we've just talked about how great the musical side of Rush is, but you know, also very cool people oh who, my do, who, who, who drink good wine and love baseball. I mean, come oh, on. I mean, what more come do you on. want? I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> and yeah, this I, I will say this about those three hooligans, man, because uh, they, you know, they can come off kind of, you know. They're, although that, that personality is relaxed over time too, <clears throat> or that perspective on them is relaxed over time too. They used to come off a little stodgy, a little cerebral at times. They are three of the collectively the funniest human beings I have ever been around, bar none, yeah. bar none. And they're and you, know, you oh can tell you can tell that uh, you know that they're best friends. You can just tell they're yeah. not just people who have to work together. They actually oh, no, en no, enjoy no. each other. So okay, they're so we, totally connected on all levels, not just all right. musical. All right, you know? this I mean, this kind of grown up together. Part of the conversation has to lead us. I've, I talked about baseball. <laughs> yes, you know, and I think you might know where I'm going with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talked about Q Prime. We talked about Rush. We talked about Def Leppard. <laughs> you have to tell the story of you were watching a baseball game with Getty, and were you supposed oh. to be mixing Def Leppard that day? Or I was supposed to be at the load in. <laughs> <laughs> That's <Okay>. for sure. <laughs> Tell the story. It's it's too good to to leave. All right. Well, let's let's set it up and say: Has anybody in the audience seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? If you've seen that movie, then this will have a whole new a whole new life to the story. 
So I'm in town. We're going to play Maple Leaf Garden with Def Leppard. This I've already worked for Rush for a bit of time. And Ged contacts me and goes, hey, I know you're in town. Blue Jays are in town playing right down the street. Let's go to the game. You got time in the afternoon. It's one, you know, one o'clock start, whatever. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? You know, <laughs> what do I got to do around here? <laughs> so, so we go to the game. Now I've kind of snuck out, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of get on the radio and go, Hey, uh, I'm going to be off campus for just a little bit. Uh, if you need me, you know, uh, try my cell phone or whatever, you know, one of those kind of days. Right. <laughs> you know, like I'm going out to lunch with somebody, right? So we go to the game. Now, Ged's got, I mean, primo seats. Primo seats. Like four seats up, first base side. I mean, fantastic. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but Ged has been to every Blue Jays baseball game. <laughs> I mean, I can't even think about how many games he's probably been to. Has never caught a foul ball. Never caught a foul ball. Third inning. I remember it like it was yesterday. Ed Sprague is up to bat. Third baseman for Toronto Blue Jays. Hits a little flare foul ball. I reach up, grab it. I have it. <laughs> now, normally, not a big deal, right? I'm, on, I'm now on the Jumbotron, which is also on the broadcast. Right? Only a baseball. Just like... Just like Ferris Bueller, you know, giving it one of these, you know. Unbeknownst to me, Peter Mensch is watching the game. <laughs> kind of does the math. Hey, am I not paying you to be at Maple Leaf Garden today? You know, so of course there was phone calls waiting for me <laughs> when we got that. <laughs> now, thank goodness, Getty and Peter are very close friends because, you know, Ged was willing to run some interference for me there. <laughs> but just to get busted like that was like, oh. Were they playing the now, Yankees? Because I know, I know, you know. Well, okay. he's a Mets fan. So, but I, I, for whatever reason, he just happened to be watching the game. Oh, funny. How funny. Oh, my I love gosh. that story. I've heard it a few times, and it's, it's just as good every time. And, you know, the, the, the backstory to that, too, is this, all right? Now, Ged has an unbelievable collection of signed baseballs, right? So we're at the game, and he goes, hey, give me your ball. I'll go get it signed by Ed Sprague, and I'll get it back to you. Okay, great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks a lot. I have yet to see that baseball. <laughs> I will never see that baseball. Somewhere in Getty Lee's house is a signed baseball by Ed Sprague. And, and with a little post-it note, this is fuck you, Scoville. I'm still not, <laughs> exactly. I'm still not caught a foul ball. <laughs> I may not have caught it, but I got it. You know, uh, the closest I ever came to catching a foul ball, I was in, I was in Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. I went to go see the Red Sox play, and I'm, I'm way out in right field. And I'm in foul territory and the, and the ball gets hit right towards me and hits the concrete step about 20 feet below me, bounces up, lands right in my lap, bounces nice. off my lap, back down the stairs. <laughs> Somebody else grabs it. You know? So That's you were not Bartman. Anyway. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not. So, so you, you, you were with Rush for, for quite a few cycles then. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I did them all the way up until they, they shut down for a while, which was, I want to say, maybe end of 97, somewhere around there. All right. And then when Brad Maddox started mixing after that, right? So, yeah. Well, when I couldn't come back, 
you know, once they started to gear back up and there was some talk of them doing another record and going back out, I mean, they contacted me, thank goodness. And, uh, you know, I had already done a full system design. We were, we were talking about going out and doing actually real surround, like 5.1 surround in an arena and kind of had all that designed up. And then I, 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 this is going to sound terrible. I don't want to say it this way, but it's kind of the truth of it. Petty caught wind of, and I already had already been working for Petty at this point because, you know, Russia shut down. I thought, yeah, let's move on. I had worked for him for two or three tours, and somehow he caught wind of it that I was that they were um, that I was going to go do that, you know. And he just put the kibosh on that right away. He, I mean, he basically bought me out for the tour. Yeah. And you know, you know, I I had to kind of bring it back to metaphor status to explain this to Rush because we didn't end on really great terms there for a little bit. It was there was some raw emotions about it. Uh, but I kind of had to say to Ged, I said, Ged, this is like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm playing for the Yankees, but, you know, the Red Sox have offered me a lifetime contract here. I, I've got to go take care of my family here. You know, I've got to, this is business right now, you know? So I, I gave them every opportunity to kind of match it up and, and keep me in the camp because I wanted to stay with Rush. I really did. I really wanted yeah. to do it, but it just didn't pan out. Now, yeah. do I regret that decision? I do not. I, I yeah. absolutely made the right decision for my life my family my career etc right. it was heartbreaking well, at the same time you, you and i were friends at that point in time i do i do rem i do remember you going through that and i and i do specifically remember you referring to part of your house as the petty wing <laughs> the petty wing <laughs> <laughs> the petty library over here yeah. <laughs> okay so so working for tom petty and the heartbreakers i mean it's we're, you know go goes Def leopard rush this is a completely different thing this is a complete, you know, there, there's no, I mean, this is a completely different thing. This is more organic. This is more analog, maybe not yeah. on your end, but this is, you know, this is Mike Campbell for Christ's yeah. sake. This, yeah. this is, this is Ben Montench. This is incredible masters of, of what they do. You know, yeah. if you're, if you're looking at, you know, you know, more so of the great American songbook kind of vibe as opposed to high tech rush, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, so, I mean, the contrast between those two worlds is yeah positively striking, you know? I, I mean, you know, the interesting thing was, it's, and it's funny how these little threads just weave through all of this, you know? I mean, Petty's management had reached out to me a couple of times uh, while I was mixing Rush uh, to come to work for them. And scheduling wise, it just didn't work out. I, there was just no way I could do it. <clears throat> and in the late 80s, um, a guy named Mike Shipley, I don't know if you know that name. He's a, I mean, really, I, I think probably maybe one of the greatest record mixers we've known uh, in the music business for many years. And he mixed uh, the Def Leppard stuff and as well as a bunch of other stuff. I, I'm not doing his career any justice here, but just a sensational guy. And he had mixed uh, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough for Petty. He had mixed that record for him. And it just sounded fantastic. I just remember thinking, wow, boy, Petty kind of stepped up their game here a little bit. And I just happened to be talking with Mike. Uh, I think it was during the Adrenalized Tour or whatever. And he goes, oh, dude, if you ever get the chance to mix Petty, he says, you have to take it. You have to take it. He says, it will be the coolest gig you ever take, bar none. He says, do not pass it up. So, you know, I kind of had that in my back pocket for a long time, you know. And then... Once again, their management reached out to me and asked if I was available. This was right before Wildflowers was getting ready to do its thing. Oh wow! And uh, and I just happened to work out, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, let's let's make it happen." You know, was now it, I'm uh, going to be. This is going to just sound so sacrilegious to say this now, 
I was, I mean, I was a, a really big fan of Tom's records, especially his earlier records, because I thought they sounded great. You know, the whole Shelly Yakis and Jimmy Iovine productions, they sounded fantastic. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was no, no Dawkins, though. This was no, <laughs> yeah, Mike Campbell's no George Lynch, let me tell you. But <laughs> that sounds terrible. I was there. But I, I even have trouble letting the words out of my mouth right now. I wasn't the hugest Tom Petty fan. I just wasn't. I, it was like I was into other things. I just wasn't the, the, the biggest Tom Petty fan. But I was, I was going to take the gig. I was like, let's, you know, I, okay, I'll take the gig. Within, this is no exaggeration, within 72 hours of taking the gig and being in rehearsals for 72 hours, I knew I was going to be there for the rest of my life. I knew I was going to, I mean, I thought I'll finish my career in this gig. It was just the most amazing amalgam of creativity and personality in a room I've ever seen. Right. Ever. You know, and you know and, what? I, I, I know exactly that sensation you're describing. You know, it's, it's intangible. You really can't describe it. You know, it's, I, I've had that a few times in my career. And I think, you know, all of us who have experienced that are kind of chasing that. Totally. Throughout our, throughout totally. our career, you know. Because it, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I can honestly say it. There was never a day of work in that camp. This was never a day of work. Right. And, and how many years did that, that working for Petty, how long did that go for you? Uh, close to 25. Wow. Wow. And uh, obviously, you, you, took it, you took it to the finish line. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, because, I mean, I'm here to tell you, he wasn't done by a long stretch and i mean it was just such a, i mean gosh just a, such an unfortunate horrible horrible tragedy yeah yeah you know but you know and, and people want to bag on him about it at times you know because of the hip and all that stuff and you know being on the painkillers but you know you have to understand tom's personality to understand this right because the hip issue arose after the tour had been planned we were probably just coming into production rehearsals. We had already been in band rehearsals a little bit. And the idea of this hip is bad and he's going to have to get this taken care of. He really should, he really should stop and get the replacement surgery. And then we go on, we should postpone the tour. And I heard him say this, we can't postpone the tour. There are people counting on me for a living. I'll make it. Wow. Right. I mean, it's just, I mean, he comes as advertised. He was, you know, the real deal. And I saw him, I mean, I, we had this little routine where I would come out and spend about 20 minutes with him before every show, on the bus, chatting, how you doing, how's your voice, you know, all, all of those kind of check-ins. And I kid you not, Chris, there were days where I saw him where he could not walk from the back lounge to the front lounge in the bus. And then 30 minutes later, I see him on stage, and he's Tom Petty rock star for the, the guitar, two and a half hours. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Amazing thing. Yeah, I saw the documentary. I don't know where it was on, uh, you know, Netflix or Amazon or whatever. The the Petty documentary was unbelievable. Uh, the uh, the Peter Bogdanovich one might have been. It's uh, I'm not sure. Kind of a four hour. Been. Yeah, exactly. It was it yeah. was it wasn't long. It, you know, I started in Florida and you yeah. know went through Mud Crutch and and all that. And oh man, even through, mixing through. the Mud Crutch thing was just such a dream. <laughs> it was. It was just amazing. Because you get to see, you know, four or five guys that have been together since they were kids. I mean, absolutely kids. And the amazing part of that tour, I think you got to be really tuned into Petty to really get this. 
but on Mudcrutch, he's the bass player. Right. And <laughs> I mean, he's, he's so funny about it. But, you know, he sings differently when he's playing bass as opposed to playing guitar. And you know, he was always going about, well, you know, when you're playing bass, you don't ever stop. He goes, there's no breaks. I got to play the whole thing. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, you got to play the whole song. Oh, how funny. You can't just throw some shapes and, you know, rah, rah the audience. Or... Yeah, I know. Yeah, but, you know, uh, you know, just following his career, whether you're a fan of his music, but just the other things he did, you know, playing with Johnny Cash when the Heartbreakers were oh. Johnny Cash's band and, and when, uh, you know, when he was with the Traveling Wilburys, you know, which was, you know, that's, it's just. That's what I'm saying. He, he walks in really, really rarefied air. I mean, he should be in the Hall of Fame three or four times, honestly. Right. I mean, just I, try, just try and reconcile in your head the catalog of songs that he or he and that band have played on. It is mind numbing. Right absolutely yeah. mind-numbing it is it is you know that's what that documentary was just kind of wow and this one oh and then that one you know we're really and and even with the documentary because i mean when he went on another 10 12 years after the documentary right, right. <laughs> and and was ready to go more i mean you know there was you know tentative plans to go out and do because they were going to do you know wildflowers was originally a double album and the warner brothers only released it as a single so there was all this stuff that they've just now released all these, the rest of the songs and it's called all the rest, but there was plans to go out and do a wildflowers tour where, you know, we were going to only play the, that double record. And oh, wow. That would have been I mean, it, we had been talking, I, I mean, I talked to him about it on the phone a couple of days before he passed away. So we, uh, the plans were in place, you know, man, you must've been heartbroken. Oh, I'm still not over it. It's still really, really raw for me. Yeah. Uh, uh. My honestly, my saving grace is to go listen to Tom Petty radio and <laughs> listen to the buried treasure show. It's just like sitting around the rehearsal room with them, you know. I, I love the story of how the Traveling Wilburys came together. It was basically a, a George Harrison solo record being produced by Jeff Lynn. And, and I think one day, I think, uh, I think they were looking for a guitar. It's like, oh, Petty's got one of those guitars. He lives right down the street. Let's get Petty. And, and before you know it, yeah, yeah, Bob Dylan is in town. Why don't you have him come over, you know? And, and it just, you know, turned into a, turned into a yeah. band. But the way I heard about it with Dylan was the funny part. I, I, I don't know this for a fact. This is just the scuttlebutt, but... Somehow he caught wind of them being in the studio together and got angry. I was like, well, I want to be in the band. <laughs> Why didn't they call me? I want to, I want to play. <laughs> you know? so, right. So now, okay, we got Dylan. Who else? Uh, Roy Orbison? Okay, yeah, sure. Bring him in. Let's, let's have some of him too. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Well, do you, know, do you know how they came up with the name for that band? I don't actually. Well, this is what I read this in an article and there was this, you know, gag line. It was this joke that they kept saying over and over again in the studio. <laughs> Sounds and totally went, right. And, and it was, uh, they say, don't worry, we'll bury it in the mix. <laughs> we'll bury it. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I love the whole thing that's happened culturally of, you know, of kind of gauging somebody whether they are a Wilbury or not, right? Wilbury or not a Wilbury, you know? <laughs> Yeah. No, no, he's not a Wilbury. Yeah. No, oh, he's a Wilbury. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Oh, funny. <laughs> well, let, let's let, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, how we got to know each other. You know, we I was working for the mighty Matchbox 20. The mighty. The mighty Matchbox 20, who, you know what, they, I, I really think they were a great band at that time. You know, they were, you know, they had the songs 
and they were wonderful human beings and it was a really really wonderful time to be on the road you know yeah. uh, family atmosphere everybody loved each other it was a lot of respect and 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 you know what we we our sound guy we were playing in europe i remember and the sound guy just left i forgot his <laughs> It was like, he's, he's like, his other gig was with Ted Nugent, you know, one day he was there and the next day, next day he was just gone. He was disappeared. So I remember Jay Summers was the monitor engineer. We put the front of house console next to the monitor console on the side of the stage. Okay, dude, take it. <laughs> and Jay and Jay mixed both of them. It was only, it was our last show. We were somewhere in, in Spain, but then, you know, we came, you know, we, you know, that's when we brought you in. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, I remember talking to you on the phone. It's like, oh, Robert Scoville, you know, everybody's telling me about, you know, he does this and that and the other. And, and, uh, and then well, we got was, to know each other. It was a really interesting time there because, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know who drove the path to get to me, but I know ML, my God rest his soul, ML yeah. Procise was involved in that process. And somehow, yeah, he was. And, then Matt and Dean Serletic, because they both reached out to me. I had conference calls with Matt and Dean in the early days of that, just discussing kind of the vision for it and what yeah. they were going to try to do. Well, so. we, we all know that uh, you know, there, were, there were huge petty fans. You know, we're getting petties, yeah. guy. Well, I, I, and I didn't know that at the time, you know. I didn't know that. I kind of thought that Matchbox 20 could be <clears throat> another Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, because they had the great songs, you know, they played well. It's just... I don't know. You know, the rise was a little too meteoric to be that, you know? I mean, they went from nothing to being huge. I mean, seemingly overnight, you know, that's that's too much of an exaggeration where, you know, Petty, I mean, they had a long grind, you know, a long grind. And, you know, there are things that happen to you as a band and as people when you all survive that long grind together. So I, I think, I actually think Matchbox is kind of experiencing some of that now, you know, because there's been so many years past since that, you know, I, I still, you know, I kind of follow Paul, the drummer on Instagram, and I can just read it into his posts. Sometimes it's a very reflective and a very respective time of yeah. or a voice about that time. You know, they, they, they understand what they went through and what, what it actually means to them now, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, Paul got a hold of me uh, probably the summer of 2019 yeah. saying, Hey, you know, uh, you know, it's been a long time. We're going to go out next year. We'd really like to bring you back in. I mean, it's been, those times were so wonderful when we're all together Yeah. and things kind of got away from us. And we were, we want to try to create some of that, that vibe that we had um, from back in, we did 98 together and then we did 2001 together, I believe. I did, I want to say I did three maybe four tours okay so you stayed longer than i did i only did the first two tours the first mm-hmm. record and the second record yeah no i i was all the way out to the fourth record oh yeah. okay so you 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 were there a while mm-hmm. oh well there you have it <laughs> yeah well at one point i was i mean i had and this you know these are the luxuries you get when you get in a really good spot you know i was doing matchbox 20 in the late 90s i guess probably mid to late 90s and of course petty wanted to tour and I mean, he's, I, this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but it's just the fact of the matter. He just, he had told his manager, if he don't go, I ain't going. So, you know, I, I was in the seat. 
So I, and, you know, I became the manager's biggest enemy because Tom insisted that he booked the tour around my Matchbox Twenty shows. <laughs> I remember so, you were you were you were at war with Tony Dimitriadis. I remember, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I love him to death, though, man. Me and Tony go. We we uh, get on famously now, but there was some tough times back then because he was having a lot of pressure put on him by Tom to to make sure that I stayed there. And uh, I remember I had one one front of house system. And I would do Matchbox 20 shows and then we would pack it up and I would go do Tom Petty shows on the bricks and then come back to the tour and do more. I Matchbox remember that. Shows. We had to move it around. You were the, you were the first one I remember ever touring with that had it. I don't know if it was pro tools, but you recorded the shows. It was oh, my yeah. first experience yeah. of, you know, you were, you were the, you know, I was with guys who were just flipping the switch and mixing, you know, and spinning knobs and sliding fader. You were, you were this, the first guy I noticed that was really into tech, you know, well, you, you know, were, and you know, you probably, I, I don't think you were privy to this when this was going on, even though you saw that aspect of it, but like in 94, 95, well, right when I started with Petty, you know, I started developing the, the virtual worship, uh, virtual sound check workflow that started in that camp. And I, you know, I was refining that in analog over a period of about 10 years before I took it to Avid and we put it in an actual product. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the, the grandfather of virtual sound check. You know, I was the only guy doing not only recording, but playback as well on site. I didn't do very much of that during the Matchbox run, but I did during Rush and Petty where I was virtual sound checking with tape as opposed to hard drives, you know. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was I definitely took notice. <laughs> well, it's kind of changed the industry, and I, I, I always knew it would. Once I kind of got my head wrapped around it, I thought, okay, if this gets handled right here, this is going to change the way people work. Absolutely, right. going to change the way people work, and and the quality of the shows. It's going to change the quality. Uh, of the I, I, I do want to get into because I know you were, you know, had an experience with Digico, and then and then now Avid. But let, let's 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 talk a little bit, you know, before we hit on that, let's. You know, you've spent your time with, uh, did you do a Prince tour, if I remember? I did, yeah, I did. Uh, I came in and I'll just uh, politely call it, I came in and bailed water off the ship for about a month uh, on GM of the year. So that was, I want to say that was late 90s, something like that. Okay, now, you, know, you speak to people, I've spoken to Roy Bennett, I've spoken to Malcolm Weldon, and, and you know, they're, you know, Prince just, you know, stories come out of there. I don't know if oh you were there. Oh my gosh, I, I, I mean, it's the Encyclopedia long, Britannica of stories. I mean, you know, that's a tomb of stories that are going to make their way out someday. I mean, it's just one of those, I mean, just amazing. I, it, and when I say amazing, I mean, it, great, bad, awful, wonderful, all of it, just put into a big pile. It's all of those things. Yeah. You know, it's one of, it, it again is a singularity. I've never been on a tour like that since. I was never on a tour like that before that. It was just an amazing. Yeah, he's one of the guys I just like too much to work for. You know, I, I just, I, 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 I don't want to not listen to your music anymore. I yeah, don't want, yeah. I don't want, I don't want it to be sullied by, by. Well, I, I'm sure you've had that happen where you, it's like, be careful who you work for. You don't want to, you know, if you work for your heroes, you might see another side of them where they may not be your heroes anymore, you know? So Right. I think you also told me uh, a Toto. Did you mix Toto? I did. I did. I mixed Toto in uh, 19... That would have been 94, because that was the year my daughter was born. So, yeah. 94. Okay, so in 94, they were still an active... 
hardworking uh, they, band in 94. They were in, they were still very much something in Europe and uh, England and Asia, but not so much in the United States. They were really. Was, was Jeff Beccaro still alive at that point or was he? No, already, no, he was no. That, you know, I got really excited to do that tour because um, that was right at the Tambu record and Simon Phillips was playing oh, drums with him at that point. And I just remember thinking, I cannot wait to go work with Simon Phillips. It's going to be so awesome. Only to have him back out of the tour about two days before we started. Oh, he came like a, a no. colitis thing, and Greg Bissonette had to fill in for him. So. Uh, I saw I saw Simon Phillips play once uh, when he was with Jeff Beck. I saw the oh. Theron, I saw the Theron Beck tour. Oh, dude! Uh, it was uh, Tony Hymas and Mo Foster, and that would have and, been uh, just Jeff Beck and, and Simon Phillips. Beck, you know that song "Star Cycle" off of Theron Beck, where it's like that I double know. kick sounds like a motorcycle. Yeah, you know, it's, it's where Van Halen probably stole. I wore that probably. record out. Absolutely. Wore that record out. <laughs> Great record. You yeah, know, yeah. here's an, here's another little known one. If you want to go back in trivia that people don't know sometimes, but go back and listen to this record now with the knowledge that it's Simon Phillips. It'll change your entire perception of the record. Go listen to Judas Priest, Sin After Sin. That's, That's Simon. Phillips. Yeah. Wow. And it, it, is it was probably fantastic. years old at the time. I he don't was, know how old he was. He was probably a kid. Yeah, but it is off the chain. Great. Wow. I do want to talk about records because, you know, I did a little I did a little sniffing around and I, and I know you do a little thing about records. So uh, <laughs> let, let's let's talk about Jackson Brown a little bit. Uh, sure, sure. I, I met Jackson Brown. Uh, he's he's friends with one of the guys in Roger Waters band and he came and I, you know, he was just so easy to talk to. And yeah. he's just a lovely guy. Loves tequila, you know, just to, who doesn't. <laughs> And I uh, had a really wonderful conversation with him. Um, tell me about working for Jackson. Uh, probably one of the most rewarding experiences of my entire career. Really? Yeah. And you've been rewarded plenty. I, I have. I, I mean, I've been so lucky. I mean, good grief. But, it, you know, it's the combination of him, the music, that voice, the players, just everything. And, I, you know, Jackson came up to me the first time we ever met. Actually, it wasn't the first time we were in the same room together, but the first time we ever met, we had Petty has uh, had played. Um, oh my gosh, I'm spacing the name of it. Uh, the outdoor place down in. Um, oh my gosh, this place has been around forever. Uh, it's in Southern Cal, down in Orange County. What's the outdoor place there? Irvine Meadows. Irvine Meadows. My gosh, I couldn't think of the name of it. Anyway, Petty was playing around Meadows. And I didn't know it, but Jackson was sitting literally two seats in front of me listening to the show. And after the after the show was over, he came up and he goes, Hey, uh, hey, my name's Jackson. <laughs> and he goes, I just, I gotta ask you a question. He goes, How do you do that? He goes, That's the greatest sounding thing I've ever ever said in front of in my entire career. He goes, It was unbelievable. And we hit it off from that moment forward. I mean, he treated me like he had known me for 40 years. We sat and talked for ages. And then I had the opportunity to go mix a bunch of stuff for him. And it was just absolutely, I mean, every mixing engineer should have the opportunity to push up a fader and have Jackson Brown's voice come out of the other end of it. It's just magical, just magical. Right. Well, you know, you know, sound guys are, you know, when it, when it, when it comes off the stage pretty good, it makes your job. Uh, oh, man. Easier. does it ever, you know? So my third son is named after him. He's, he's Jackson's namesake. Oh, so. really? Yeah. 
And we've been, you know, we, I don't want to say we've been close friends. We, I, I can't characterize it as that. But we, every time we see each other, it's very familiar and very respectful, very cool. It's just one of those, one of those things I'll take to the grave with me. Because, wow. you know, I, the, the flip side of that story is with the company I was working for in Kansas City, we did some of those early Jackson Brown shows in, you know, 1979, 1980, around there. And I remember just, it, 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 you know, even at that point, when you did a Jackson Brown show, it was like, wow, that is different than anything I've ever done. That was so good, so professional, so so everything. It just made you want uh, want to be around that, you know. Well, wasn't that era, awesome. wasn't that the, the like the lawyers in love era? <laughs> Where he that kinda, was he, just, he, he, it was just kinda, after that. Yeah, he kind of went off 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 topic, I think, in my opinion, for a little while. But you well, know. he got sucked into the '80s, just like everybody did. Yeah, you know? I, I guess so. I mean, it's still pretty good record. I mean, you can look back and listen to that record; those records hold up, man. I mean, they got the '80s kind of splashy production on them, but it's still Jackson Brown. Good grief! Right. So you you you've had you know like we were just talking about uh, you know you've had some pretty good product to mix. Um, any any any. Any turd polishing that you've had to do over the years? <laughs> We're going to make me go there. Huh? <laughs> oh, you don't have to. You don't have to. Oh, how funny. So, so, you know, okay. So technology over and over again is so important to you. You've been, you, you've, you've embraced it and you've been, you're an innovator. You've promoted, it, you teach it, you, you, yeah. you sponsor it. Um, you're with Avid now. And uh, and I I had a chance to work with your your partner Rob Allen on Massive Attack. Yeah, yeah. Who I you know I, I would say hey next time you talk to Scoville just say hi to him for me tell him I miss him you know all this stuff I don't know if he ever passed on it. Yes, he did. Or, he absolutely did. But uh, he gave me a little insight on on the things you do as an, an ambassador for for Avid. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What do you do for Avid? Well, what's your, what's your you title? know, it started, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you the whole story. There's only one way to tell this story. So in 1986, 85, 86, I was mixing monitors for Lori Anderson. You know, wow. Lori Anderson, Home oh, of the Brave, yeah. all that. Oh, yeah. Very, she's right. an innovator in what she does. Very. Yeah, it was absolutely avant-garde. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And, it, you know, obviously technology was just flowing through that show. I mean, it was, we were doing things nobody had even remotely dreamt of doing right <clears throat> and a guy named david labolt was playing keyboards with her and david and i hit it off pretty well i mean we got along really well we were hanging out on days off together you know blah 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 so we go through that tour tour ends and as we always kind of see things happen we went our separate ways right hey david nice working with you see you around 15 years later i get a call Hey, it's Dave LeBolt. I've been working uh, with DigiDesign for the past 10 years, helping them develop Pro Tools. And he, he drove all of the big Pro Tools development through the 90s. He was kind of the, the visionary for all of that. And he goes, we're thinking about putting together a live sound console. Will you come up and work on it with us? <laughs> I was like, yeah, absolutely. So this was 1999, 2000. And I, I did this really quietly. I mean, because, you know, digital consoles weren't really, oh, for my, like, my, I yeah. was just like, it's not quite there yet. So I kind of tiptoed in there, but I had access to some really great people there and they were listening to things that I had to say and suggesting and, and sure enough, you know, I made it all the way to, to 2005 in that role at DigiDesign as a consultant on this thing called the Venue Project. 
so that was the venue console when it first came out. So, you know, I've had my hands in there a long, long time. I mean, in terms of that, I'm, I'm coming up on 20 years of dealing with them now. So when 2005 came around, you know, and the product released, uh, they just said to me, "We, you just need to go to work for us. Come on, you know. And, and I was kind of looking to slow down a little bit touring-wise at that point because my kids were, you know, coming into play. I, you know, I had three, well, two kids by that time and was getting ready to have a third. So I wanted to be home and be dad a little more. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll try this for a while and see how it goes being corporate guy. Uh, but they, they put me in a, such a cool position there where I kind of had influence on the design of the product, the marketing of the product, kind of I had a touch on sales. I, I had influence on all of that, you know, kind of going forward. So long story short, I, I've been there for a long time in that role. And the, the thing that I brought to the table there as much as anything, aside from just console expertise and understanding that, was the concept of virtual sound check that did not even exist in anyone's mind previous to me coming there and say because I, I saw it in the late 80s when I started recording with Pro Tools. You saw some of this with Matchbox 20 where I started thinking, OK, now now that we're away from tape machines, this is the way virtual sound check is going to work. I, I can absolutely see it on the horizon. Just got to go make it happen now. You know, so, I, I, you know, I was influential in designing, uh, you know, building that into that design. Okay, and then, well, that's DigiDesign. Tell yeah, and then, well, you know, they were owned by Avid at the same time. It was just two oh, different were. companies. Yeah, it was okay. Avid and DigiDesign. Avid was the video portion. <clears throat> DigiDesign was audio. And then sometime the brands converged around 2009, maybe, 2010, where it just became Avid, and they, they got rid of the DigiDesign name. Gotcha. So are you, are you into R&D still, or are you more? Yeah. yeah, Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Well, where else is there to go? <laughs> is this, well, is it, is it believe just... it or not, there's lots of places to go here. And, you know, again, this is where we're going to circle back to around to some early conversation because there's a lot of energy in manufacturing right now talking about remote mixing workflows where wow. I could be sitting right here and mixing with my surface, mixing on an engine that is remotely located somewhere and mixing for the stream. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, it's, this is already happening in broadcast, and we're going to see it happen in concert sound as well. So, you know, kind of the, the perfect version of that story is, okay, Chris, you go hire a company to do production or, or hire your production elements for a tour, lighting company, video company, sound company. Guess what else you're going to hire? You're going to hire a studio that's going to be online every night from 6 o'clock to midnight mixing your streamed audio. Because it'll be another source of revenue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I, I, that's the way I see it happen. Well, it's, it's going to happen. I, I have no doubt that that's going to happen. And I think it's going to fuel, it's just me, this is me shooting from the hip a little bit. I think it's going to fuel some other big movements in the, the television world and the streaming world. Like, I, I'm still a little curious why we haven't seen something like the Warner Brothers channel that is nothing but Warner Brothers artists and Warner Brothers live performances of their artists, et cetera, available in a, like a Hulu stream or something like that. Hmm. You know, like a Paramount network. Well, why not have a Atlantic Records network? Why well, isn't heard, that I've, happening? I've, I've heard managers talk about that. And I, I think agents are fearful that would hinder the ticket sales. See, I know. think just the opposite is going to happen. I, I, I really do. I really believe this. A, a I, I think the streaming this year has shown us now that it's not a replacement for live performance. 
And matter of fact, I think after this, after we start to get back, there's going to be a premium and a value put back on being in the building with the artist. It's going to refocus everybody on that and go, oh man, that's so much better than watching a stream. Right. But that said, streaming will be a part of every one of these things so that it's, they got all these other avenues for it. Because they can't really, they can't really, you know, monetize streaming yet. But because it feels wrong to do it. It's like, well, we're shut down. Why are you trying to take money from me just to watch your damn stream? Yeah. But when it's in conjunction with live performances somewhere, now you might, you're going to get away with it there. Start well, getting some advertising dollars in there. Ooh, yeah, boy. some sponsors. Well, you know, just speaking about North America, the States and Canada, it's uh, a lot of people who can't go to big cities to see shows. That's right. I remember when I was a kid, you know, Led Zeppelin did not come to Connecticut, you know, you had to go to New York City to see them, you know, and there, there are people that can't make it or can't afford it or can't go into the big city because maybe it means a hotel and transportation and all these, yeah. but, you know, but they can scratch the money together with their friends to, to pay for a, a pay well, I, You know what it's like even being production manager <clears throat> in a big tour. you got to go to the cities that can financially support the tour. Right. You know, I mean, if they don't have a venue there that can support the size of the show you're doing, you're not going to go. You know, what about as far as you know, plugins and whatnot? Are you are you active in coming up with all that? I mean, I, I, there, I mean, to, to, in 2021, you can you can make a show sound analog but digital. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all you can. Of I, I'm on record as saying that I, I can take a digital console today and I can make it sound more analog than an analog. Yeah, because I can emulate it to such a degree that you couldn't actually do some of that in analog. Mm -hmm. And analog is a one trick pony. I mean, it's you're either analog or you're not analog, you know. So, right. Uh, so it's, you know, it's still in its I, I think it's still in its early days. I mean, all of the console manufacturers, I don't care who it is, are only on their second generation of digital consoles now, maybe with the exception of Yamaha, if you want to go all the way back into their little mixers but in terms of large frame digital consoles mm. everybody's just on their second generation now it's still really really new really fresh we're still figuring stuff out all the time especially if you start adding it up with networked audio now 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 you're talking about being able to do some really really amazing things you know mm. oh god remember the days of you know, your system engineer had to chart the console every night. <laughs> you had to write down where all the knobs were. I still have just, all of those charts. You know, so, so you start the next day by making sure all the knobs are in the same spot <laughs> and the faders are. It's just, yeah. uh, it just seems so, you know, archaic. Yeah, yeah. by comparison. And, you know, you always, you know, this whole argument of analog versus digital, sound quality, all those kind of things. You have to put that in the right context, right? You have to put it in the context of live performances, shows going up and down every day, huge amounts of inputs, outputs, mm -hmm. et cetera. You know, I, I mean, I'll give you a great example. So I did a show here in Aspen a couple of years ago now uh, called Earth's Call. And it was a huge show. Uh, it was this uh, kind of save the earth benefit, right? Uh, L.A. Philharmonic, you know, band sitting in front of them, just an inordinate amount of singers and performers, et cetera. I, I remember at one point on the console, I had 192 inputs open <laughs> to the PA system. And I, I remember having that kind of moment of just thinking, this would not be possible in analog right now. 
You'd this be would surround, take, you'd be surrounded by consoles, yeah. Yeah, I'd be surrounded by consoles and additional engineers. There would be three people. It would take three and, people and, to and, mix and, this and, right and now. And buzzes and <laughs> well, yeah, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, no, it's but you know, I just remember thinking, okay, this is this is where digital is making its way here because we can do things now that we wouldn't have even attempted before. Mm. You know, what do you what do you think of uh, what do you think of what uh, Claire's doing these days? Uh, in what context in the, well, I mean, just the networking in, in, thing, in, in the networking thing and, you know, they, they've, they've, you know, they've in a positive way, cause we all know how the Claire's work, you know, it's not a monopoly. It's more of a family bringing all the resources together. Yeah. Uh, you know, the purchasing of, uh, eighth day sound the purchasing of Britannia row and you yeah. know, going back to Shoko and whatnot. And then, and the tech they have now and the education that they're, 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 they're doing in litits and whatnot. Yeah. I, I really think, I really think it's, you know, we're, we're not talking about AT&T owning everything or, or yeah. Warner owning everything. We're talking about a company that's, that's doing it the right way and educating and, and bringing people together and, I just blown away, and and you know what, and and Sean Claire, they're in really good hands. I agree. For a long time into the future because yeah. of them. I mean, it's it's really easy to the uninformed to look at Claire Brothers and characterize them as the Death Star, you know, and they're just not. You know, they're just very very smart guys, very very smart business people, and the thing I like about all of this growth and expansion that has happened for them is that they're trying to turn that all back into the industry mm. with the Claire campus, the, you know, uh, the ability to rehearse up there, you know, the, all of it, all of it is really geared at toward making the industry better. Yeah. It's not, it's not about making Claire brothers better. It's about changing the sound reinforcement industry. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it kind of is in a way making Claire better because, you know, I talked to Sean on a podcast and he was saying that even back when they bought Shoko, they brought some Shoko practices into Claire that they didn't have before. That, that's you what know, I'm talking about. That, that made Claire better, that made everything yeah. better. Just like little things like inventory and, yeah. and just little they they learn from all these other companies i mean I, I was thrilled to see them take on the networking thing they they were way ahead of the game on this yeah being able to set up local high-speed you know uh private networks you know that can have public access blah 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 you know all of it they were yeah. way ahead of the curve well, on this and i, I remember thinking look I, I honestly i remember thinking at that point okay claire brothers finally gets it it's a services business it's not a technology business they're offering services here, you know? right? And yeah. I and I think that's part of what's. It's just my own take on it. I, you know, I I've talked to Sher, uh, Sean many times, but you know, this is just my personal instinct talking here. I think that's part of what's behind the eighth day acquisition, the uh, uh, the Britannia Row acquisition, because if you look at the centerpieces of those companies' technologies, they're different, right? Eighth day is a D and B house. Britannia Row is an L acoustics house. So Claire Brothers is now starting to offer more focus on services, not mm -hmm. S4s, right? Yeah. It's not just we make the S4, so let's use this company. Now they've got a lot of options now that are all Claire Brothers, right? Mm -hmm. That's smart. That's smart business. And they've got, you know, the all the all the great techs are out there. You know, I mean the the service is, you know, you're just 
taken care of in, in so many ways other than getting good kit. Yeah. I, I love them because they think big. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> can't, we, we, we can't talk about Britannia row without talking about our friend, Brian Grant and, and, the, <laughs> and the fun, and the fun that we've had with Brian Grant. I still have I, mean, a headache. I, I, I have to tell the story one night where you and I had a night off and oh. I think we had a, we had a couple nights off in London. Cause I remember you and I went, thank to the goodness. Bruce. We went to the Brixton Academy to see Tool that one That's right. And I just That's remember right. that was that was an absolutely incredible show. But I'm not talking about that. We, Brian Grant, who Britannia uh, Row, uh, took us out to dinner. We went to this ball in Italian place. I mean, the food was just sensational from bread, salad, pasta, meats, all of it, you know. And then we must have, between the three of us, we must have had five bottles of wine. I mean, yeah. we were just doing it. We were I just wish I remembered it. the meal. I just... <laughs> <laughs> and then and then Brian goes, oh, mate, let's, let's, let's go over to my house. I've got this beautiful bottle yeah. of port. So so we get in this car and, and we, we, <laughs> we go to Brian's house and we sit there in his kitchen and just talk shit for a couple hours and, and drink this bottle of port to completion. Which I, we had no business drinking. Which we had no business doing to begin with. And, and, and I remember because we had to work the next day. <laughs> and I remember Brian, classy man, called us a car. You know, we, we didn't have to look for a tax or anything. A car service showed up. And I just remember we're, we're, going, we're in the front door saying goodbye to Brian. And you know how people by the front door, they have like a little table for their keys and their mail and all these other things. <laughs> and you kind of lose your balance and lean on it. <laughs> Knock it over. Table goes over. Mail goes everywhere. You're you're being very kind to say I lost my balance. I think I was really on the verge of passing out. Okay, oh. so so the next morning, lobby call. We've got a gig. I think we're going. I think we're going out to Glastonbury or something. I'm not sure what we're doing, but that, we're that actually sounds right. And, you know, right. and these aren't the days where everybody had these really clever rolling suitcases. You had, a, you had, a, I remember you had a big duffel bag with, with handles and you're meant to carry it. And, and I'm on the bus and I can see the door and I'm waiting for you to come out. And you come out, you've got your bag in one hand, you're dragging your luggage. Your luggage what? is dragging and it's like you're collecting leaves and going through puddles and you're just like, like I gotta tell you, my bag was dragging me to the bus. I, you know, I was not I was not in charge of that bag. I'm telling you. Oh, that was funny. Okay, so I I, I do want to get to this. I, like I said, I did a little research. I, I I went onto your website and I noticed you do a vinyl blog. And, I, and yeah, and, I went and, through and, a period where I was doing it. Yeah, I know. I, I I'm a huge vinyl guy. That's my my days off on the road are spent in record shops hunting, and 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 searching and and just you know I just that's just my thing. I don't I don't do anything other than look for records these days. And I went through and I and I read a bunch of your blogs. You did a thing on live records. You spent a period of time where you examined live records and you do a little story about each live yeah. record and not only your feelings about it, but maybe who mixed it and who was yeah. responsible for it and whatnot. And I, I read a bunch of them and I found them really entertaining and informative, you know, I mean, Oh, that's cool. I'm so glad. Uh, yeah. I was, certain. I mean, what drove it initially was I was, I was going to be mixing some live records for a couple of clients. And I thought, you know what, I'm going back and study a little bit, you know, and, and I mean, I guess coincidentally, I don't know how else you would describe it. I mean, the vast majority of my vinyl collection that you can see back here behind me and over here is live records. Like I don't have that many studio vinyls anymore, but almost all of that is live records. So I've, I've been collecting live recordings 
of every genre for for ages. So, um, you know, the idea of going back and studying some of those and kind of getting a feel for what what those sounded like for the stuff I was going to be mixing was a lot of fun. So at that point, my son, I would wake up every morning, wake my son up at six o'clock in the morning, get ready to go to school. And while he was getting ready, I would put one of these records on and write the blog. By the time I got done with that, he was ready to go to school and off we go, you know, rinse, lather, repeat, 30 days of study. Here we go. <laughs> wow. I think they're fantastic. And I think in the, in the, in the, in the notes for the podcast, I'm going to, I'm going to put a link. So people who are interested in seeing that, cause they're really good. I mean, the one you wrote about Mahavishnu orchestra, loved yeah. it. Uh, Seconds out by Genesis, where you made a mention, Emil Procise, is he mixing monitors for Genesis? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. Well, it was, it was so much fun to go back and look at those liner notes, you know, I mean, it's yeah. just, I mean, and you know, that's something that we don't have today that it's really, yeah. really unfortunate. That whole you know? tactile vibe of records. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I live by myself, but you know, I, I roll, I have this rolling stool and I'll just roll around in front of my records and I just, I'll listen to one, but I look at the others and I open them up and I read the liner notes and it's just, you know, not only does it bring back memories, but it, it, you know, it's just, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe it goes just, our love of music. No, there's there's we're something we're doing. You know, there's something right about it. I, I, I'm not, you know, capable of dissecting it and you know psychoanalyzing it, whatever. But there's something right about that. It, it's very analogous to opening a book and reading it, as opposed to reading a book on your phone or having, you know, some yeah. a book read to you. It's that experience is not the same. I don't yeah. care if you're born a week ago or you're born 50 years ago there's something right about that tactile experience yeah. of doing that and, and i you know just something about that idea of putting the record on on the turntable the whole piece of it there's something yeah. really Very, really right yeah. about that and even i'll tell you something else about pops. that blog which is which i'm kind of proud of and kind of it's kind of cool those records that are in that blog were not intentional Meaning I, I kind of made a deal with myself, you know, cause I didn't want to kind of just gravitate toward the things I listened to all the time. I was like, I'm going to come down in the morning. I'm going to go like this, stop, pull it out. That's what we're listening to today. Nice. Nice. I, I, I love it. I love it. You know, it's just, well, you know, live records were a thing when we were kids. Not, they were, not so much anymore. I mean, someone doesn't, no one puts out live records anymore because like, maybe they don't sell, you know, or maybe there's too many bootlegs out there. But, you know, live records were the thing. It was like a greatest hits record or something, you know? Yeah. And, and you kind of, I, I, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I kind of judged, you know, whether a band had their bona fides yeah. by their live record, you know? I mean, that, that, that usually told us whether we wanted to go see them live. Yeah. True. And, and, oh, and also, my, I think probably the fame, my favorite one, one I read and, uh, was uh, Almond Brothers' Fillmore East. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, and, and, and you know, because I, you know. That might have been Bill, one of the only intentional ones I picked because yeah. I was like, I know I have to talk about this one. <laughs> well, uh, Bill, Bill Graham's autobiography, I, I, I've read it a few times. I just, you know, I just love the history <clears throat> of that man. And so I, I remember that era of he talked about a lot of records recorded Phil Maurice during while, while it was open for those three years it was open or whatever. But in you, in your, in your notes in that blog, you're saying you got to keep in mind the Almond brothers were like third band, you know, they were like in the middle of the bill. They weren't headlining. I'm like, they yeah. were like playing after Jefferson airplane and before the grateful dead or something. Yeah. And we're going to record know? a record. And we're going to record a record with two drummers, 
you know, two guitar players, <clears throat> keyboards, all these inputs and microphones to put up during a set change and just throw and go and do one of the best live records ever made. Ever made. Yeah. I, I, that's why I just marvel at it. I just do. I just. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, the, they're the, the, you know, whether you want to call them Southern rock, I, I don't really consider them Southern rock. They're just a great rock and roll band. They, they've stood the test of time where I can listen to the Allman Brothers now. And I, I really can't listen to Leonard Skinner or, you know, yeah. it just, just doesn't do it for me. But the Allman Brothers, you know, Dwayne Allman, the Barry Oakley, that whole thing before the tragedies, it was just freaking pure. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. I, it's my favorite thing to snowboard to. Like that's the music I have on when I'm snowboarding. Right. Right. It's How just fun. magic. Oh, fun. Well, this has been incredibly fun. Uh, I, I cannot tell <laughs> long you. Long overdue, man. Oh, long, you know, long overdue. The last time we saw each other, I had a day off in Phoenix. I think it was you, Butch Allen, and I. Yeah, where, remember you, that place we went to eat? Remember? Yeah, yeah. That place doesn't exist anymore, I know. But that chef was <laughs> big ball. And his name was Chris. Chris something or other. Yeah, that was um, full on. You got some good food in your town. Yes, you we know? do. Yes, uh, tr Trotto. I just, you know, I just automatically go to Trotto these days, yeah. you know, or, yeah. you know, so much good food. I mean, we got Pizzeria Bianco here. Oh, yes. well, that's Trotto's, one of Chris Bianco's restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just so, so, so good, you know. Hey, and, and also, I, it just sounds like you need to come to Phoenix. I, uh, I, you know, I can what? hear I, it I, in I, your I'm, voice. I'm, I'm happy to come. I'm totally <laughs> happy to come while I can. Oh, and you're, you're doing Iron Man's now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I've been into the whole kind of fitness thing for about, I don't know, 10 years now, 10, 12 years now. Wow. Yeah, I just did my first Ironman last October. Nice. You finish? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I know good. Matt, Matt's, that's your talking Matt's wheelhouse now, you know, Matt's, <laughs> Matt's, Matt's into fitness and riding bikes and, and torturing yes. his body just like that. Somehow I got hooked up. Uh, don't ask me how. Somehow I got hooked up with some guys here in town who are, I mean, they're like full on endurance race guys, right? And one of them trains people to get ready for Navy SEALs, right? And it's intense. I mean, it's full on. So I was going to his gym for a little period of time. And, you know, while I was there, you know, I did the Alcatraz challenge. We did that swim and the run. Really? I've done the Great Wall Marathon. And wow. Did did two world's toughest mutters, which were really that's really something, man. Twenty four wow. hour endurance race. That is that is everything you want and more. Well, you look so. fit. You look great. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Not bad for yeah. sixty. Oh, oh. You, you, oh, you know what? I, I, I your your lovely wife Mary Jo, who who is you're so lucky. You've got you know one of the people in the industry who who's who's got this incredible. She's marriage, which weapon. is tough for road guys, but she was in touch with me all trying to get me to, to get involved with the 59th. But I was, I, was, I, just, oh. could, I just couldn't do it. Was did that, you know, and there was so much going on and so many people knew about it. Did that? Well, your wife threw you a surprise 59th birthday because 60 was too obvious. So she wanted to throw you a 59th. Yes. And let's did just, up, let's just consider, was yeah, it a surprise? Let's just consider, oh my gosh, was it ever? I, I totally, I was in hook, line and sinker. It was so embarrassing. I <laughs> uh, really would have loved to have come to that. But, you know, I, let's, I, I, let's I, just I give consider, a Chris, how prescient she was here. Because if she would have waited till my 60th birthday, we couldn't have had the party. Oh, wow. That's true. Because of the lockdown. That's true. I was like, are you really that smart? I mean, how did you, <laughs> how did you do that? <laughs> who, who makes that decision, oh, right? Funny. Oh, we'll just, no, we're, we'll 
we're going to have it during his 59th so we can celebrate it the whole year. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Last question. Uh, does the, do you still want to mix live shows? Totally. I'm, I'm on the prowl for tours now that are going to okay, go back good. out. Yeah. All right. So you, 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 you want to get on the bus with me. Dude, I would get on the bus with you to mix the the Mickey Mouse Club. Let's go. I mean, what, are we, what are we waiting on? <laughs> oh, that's so good to hear. Because you know, so many people, you know, when they get to be our age, they're like, yeah, you know, I don't know, this might be this might be it for me. And then no, no, and I, then this I, pandemic I'm, is just going. No, nope, I'm not done. I'm, I'm a lifer. I'm ready I'm to go. Well, fantastic. She knows well, it too. Well, she's ready know. to get rid of me. She's she's going to be booking gigs for me before long. Get him out of the house, my God. Well, Robert Scoville, multi-award winning sound engineer, whether it be Parnelli or the TCs, you're, 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 you're decorated to the ceiling uh, and a great guy and, 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 a, and a great friend of mine who I miss you so much. And I, and I promise not to let our friendship slip away. I know it's slipped not away. Do we that. Let's, not, it, let's, let's not do let it. it go another 10 years. Okay. Yeah. What do you say? Or more. It's actually probably been even more than that. Honestly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's been great chatting with you, man. This has been so fun. Likewise, Chris. Likewise. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I, I, I'm honored to have you have be oh, a part of it. Oh, awesome. good. What do you got for him, Matt? Uh, nothing. You know, that was, that was great and uh, very charismatic and awesome. <laughs> Great audio and great stories, and I loved it. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to say, this has been, you know, as far as guest audio, probably the best we've ever had. Yeah, it puts us to shame. So <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do now, trying to make it all sound okay. So well, there's a lot of pressure in the in the online world now for audio guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we've learned anything of a year of watching people on Zoom, on TV, and et cetera, it's like how bad audio is like oh my gosh the audio on those things is horrible you know i know that so, yeah it's like 50 it's a years old but I'll, I'll you know give me that model number i, I gotta figure that out that's you know. hey, good luck finding one <laughs> <laughs> and then and, and the boom it's all great yeah it's good well, well again man I, I i miss you and thank you so much my friend thank you chris I love you brother yeah i love Please you take too. care of yourself can't wait, can't wait to see you soon and i'm coming Chris, we're going to, you know what? Last time I was at Pizzeria Bianco, I swear to God, last time I was there, there was four of us. We ordered the entire menu. We ordered every pizza. We ordered every appetizer, everything. Because that's what you do. That's menu. exactly what you're and supposed to do. I am not do. exaggerating. We just did. It was so fun. So yeah. fun. Uh, all right, man. All right. Chris, right. Matt, thank you guys so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Absolutely. Take care. We'll see you, you guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.